hope you're not tired of looking at me yet, because I'm going to be up here for another 45 minutes at least. This morning we're going to turn back to our study in Mark. We had a break last week. Um, that was a wonderful sermon, wasn't it, from Paul Vigiano? Uh, Paul O'Hara and I just want to let you know that we really appreciate your patience as we work out what the preaching schedule looks like with just the two of us here. Um, I know it's going to be a little bit different, but uh, thankfully over the next month or so, we'll have a few guest speakers. So next week we're going to have Pastor Myron Drent. Uh, he's a missionary, uh, a friend of Kenneth. Kenneth can tell you more about him. He's a friend of mine too. Um, so please be here next week and you'll, you'll enjoy hearing from Pastor Myron. Um, and he also is a, a potential missions interest for us. So uh, he'll be meeting with the missions committee as well. Um, then you all know, as we announced earlier, Michael Beasley, our pastoral candidate, will be preaching here the first two weeks of December. So, so once again, I know there's been a lot of changes, um, but I, for one, I'm, I'm excited to see what God will do in the next season of our church. Um, so hang in there. We'll, we'll wait and see, wait upon the Lord. Um, last week, we really did have a wonderful comfort applied to us from Psalm 107. And again, uh, we want to thank Pastor Paul Vigiano from Branch of Hope for he really came and applied medicine to us, didn't he? Um, he? He taught us how to take comfort in God's sovereignty and his power, how nothing's out of God's control and uh, God's care for us, his people. The Lord is not just there in the storm with us. He's the one who made the storm, and he's the one that leads us into it. Have you ever thought back on your life and reflected on how many things have taken place that, that you would not have volunteered for? Um, that you, things that you would have avoided if given the opportunity. Those really tough seasons of hardship like, uh, like illness, financial setback, loss of loved ones. I was thinking about that this week, things in my life that I would never choose to have happen to me or never choose to participate in, things that I would never forfeit on my own. And yet God put them into my life. And the times were painful but after some distance from it, some maturing, I understood why those things needed to happen for God to be most glorified and for my own good, for the changes that needed to happen in my life. Uh, eventually, I'm even able to be thankful for those things. But that's, that's not the point, is it? When you're in the midst of pain, it's kind of an empty comfort to, to think about how your life will eventually be better again. It kind of falls flat when you're in the middle of it. So what we need to do in the here and now, as, as Paul was teaching us last week, is to take refuge in God's power and trust in his help. When a child suffers an injury, they're not thinking about how that injury is going to give them tenacity and, and toughness and forbearance, right? What do they do? All they do is, is hurt, and all they know is that they need the care and comfort of their, their mom or dad. A mom or dad who's able to kiss their boo-boo away and give them the comfort of a warm and loving embrace and protect them from further harm. The child's response to look for his mother and run straight to her for comfort is the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? Or when a, when a little girl feels threatened, won't she immediately look for the strongest man she knows, her daddy, and go hide behind him? She takes shelter with him. And so I just want to ask you, is, is that what we're doing? Do we take comfort when we, when we suffer injury or fear, do we run to him for comfort and protection? We don't have to do it on our own. 
He made the storm. He brought the hardship. It's for his glory and for your good. So get your comfort and protection from your heavenly father. Uh, before we get into our text today, I just want to review a little bit and set the scene for what's going to happen in today's passage. Two weeks ago, Paul helped us to see the picture of Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, and we can hear the crowd's responses of Hosanna in the highest, etc. Um, Paul covered it really well, but I want to provide a little more context for this so we see a clearer picture of what's going on in Jerusalem now during this last week before Jesus' crucifixion. So we're going to have a little bit of history lesson first. Um, so we're going to talk about Passover. Passover was one of the annual holidays where the Jews were required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem and participate in the feast. There are varying estimates of how many Jews actually lived in Jerusalem during Jesus' time, and the, really, there's really a wide variety of estimates. Some people say as low as 20,000, other people say as high as 600,000, but if you kind of meet in the middle, the general consensus was about 100,000 people lived in Jerusalem at that time. So that would be a normal time for the city of Jerusalem. But at Passover, almost the whole country comes to participate. So the number of people in the city could swell to as many as, as two to five million, which is quite a lot. So where do we get that number from? Uh, Josephus recorded that up to 250,000 lambs were killed during the annual Passover feast. And you know from the rules about the Passover, they have to eat the whole lamb the same night without keeping any leftovers. If there were any leftovers, they had to, to burn it up. So since this is a, a farming and fishing society, agrarian society, they don't want to waste a lot of meat. So for efficiency, it would probably be at least 10 to 20 adults to eat a lamb without wasting a lot. And you can also think about the large crowds that were following Jesus, like the one on the road from Jericho, where, where Jesus encountered blind Bartimaeus. We mentioned this just shortly a couple weeks ago, but that crowd was probably in the tens of thousands. Because Jesus and his disciples were not the only people heading for Jerusalem at that time. A whole lot of people would be making their way to Jerusalem at this time of year for the Passover. According to the, the historians, like we talked about, probably a couple million were on their way. So the roads would have been very busy. The streets would have been packed. The hotels will all be full. Everyone that lived there would have extended family staying with them. Just a lot of people. Think about those numbers. Even if that 600,000 estimate was correct for the normal population. If there's three million people in the city, that's five times the normal amount. It's hard to overstate how crowded it would be. One person described it like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Have any of you ever been there for that? It's, it's busy. Um, now think about the triumphal entry with, with how crowded the city was and how popular Jesus has gotten. Not to mention this crowd of potentially tens of thousands following him and, and joining into the, the parade. Can you see that this wasn't a small event? Paul was explaining to us how the religious class would feel threatened by Jesus. Maybe you can see a little more why that would be. Uh, it, the city's already, it's a zoo, it's just a, a tumult. And just about the whole country is packed into this place for Passover. And then here comes Jesus presenting himself as a king, riding on a donkey. He's no longer, no longer being timid about his identity, and the people are receiving him the way that they would receive a king. So we have a little clearer picture. Not just this little parade with a few palm branches and a few people saying, Hosanna, 
But this kingly entry of someone who, if he, if he really wanted to, he could start a revolution. He could try to get a new kingdom going. Wouldn't it be an opportune time for him to do that, if he was wanting to do that? The whole country was already there. Looking back, we know that's not what his intention is, but they didn't know that. So that's enough review for today. We'll get into our text. We're going to start with verse 12 of Mark chapter 11, and we'll try to get through verse 19. Let's read the whole thing. Mark 11, starting with verse 12. The word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when everything came, when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching today. Heavenly Father, as we receive this word, Teach us, Lord, how to be good trees that bear good fruit. Teach us, Lord, what you desire in true religion. Thank you for this picture of our Lord and his zeal, his, his zeal for the temple, for your house. Change us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, before we get started in earnest, I, I want to let you know we're going to be spending a good deal of time in Jeremiah, so specifically chapters 7, 8, and 24. So just put your bookmark in Jeremiah, and we'll turn there when we come to it. And now we'll start with verse 12 of our text. It says, on the following day when, he, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. I really like this verse because of what it does. It's really easy for us to, to see kind of the miracles the huge crowds, and then this triumphal entry, and it, it elevates our picture of Jesus um, and brings the God-man into focus, emphasis on the God part. Jesus is a big deal, right? We can see that. The, the people are recognizing that. But then it says he was hungry. Jesus, the man, was hungry. He needed to eat. It was necessary for Jesus, the man, to eat. This is just one more thing about his selflessness that we can zoom in on and take notice. You have to understand this is his hunger, his need to eat. That's not just a byproduct of Jesus' humanity. The necessities of human weakness are not merely incidental to the incarnation. 
They're intentional. They're integral. They're important. It's necessary for Jesus to be a man and experience everything that we experience. Why does he have to be a man that gets hungry? Hebrews answers it for us. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then later on in Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Do you see the two reasons given there? He had to be fully man, because only a man can pay the price for the sins of mankind. And yet it has this other effect too. We get this comfort in knowing that our perfect Jesus is indeed one of us. But in spite of his humanity and all the weaknesses that come with being a human person alive on the earth, he was still sinless. Even something as simple and fundamental as hunger can lead to sin for us, right? Do you know anybody that gets hangry? Maybe you're a person that gets hangry. I know someone that gets hangry. Jesus didn't get hangry. A real example, in John 4, when Jesus is ministering to the woman at the well, the disciples had gone into town to buy food. Why'd they do that? Because they were out of food, and they need food. After they get back, in verse 31, it says they were urging Jesus to eat. And then he says something really strange in response. He says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're going, what? Peter, did you, did you give him something? No, I didn't give him anything. John, did, was it you? They're confused. And then Jesus says, no, that's not what I mean. My food is to do the will of God. What did he mean by that? Jesus never for a single second of his life was not obedient to the law of God. And he used every waking moment to do the will of God. While he needs food to sustain his human body, satisfying his stomach does not drive him like it drives us. His priorities are different. He's satisfied by God's word. And he seeks to find his own satisfaction in doing what God requires. That's what he did on our behalf. His priorities were always right. He didn't even sin when he got hungry. That was a little thing. But he didn't, he didn't respond to hunger inappropriately like we do. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Let's move on so we can cover some more ground. Verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. I don't want to spend too much time here because Mark is going to bring us back to this fig tree later in the chapter as well as in chapter 13. So I'm just going to give you a summary now and we'll talk about it more in depth when we get to those other two passages. What Jesus is doing here is not because he is hangry. He's not getting revenge on the tree because it doesn't have food for him. Rather, he's making a physical picture of the spiritual fruitlessness of Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish religion. For all their scribes and Pharisees, knowledge of the law, temple worship and sacrifices, obedience to spiritual routines, 
Laws on top of laws, on top of laws, on top of laws. There is no spiritual fruit. While he curses this tree, he probably has the prophet Jeremiah in mind. I mentioned that earlier. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll start with verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah 8, starting with verse 8. How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain from profit to priest. Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Do you see how God is describing a backslidden people who are only concerned about worldly things? and not spiritual things. They're not heeding God's word, but rejecting it. Even the scribes and priests and prophets are corrupt. Does that sound like Jerusalem during Jesus' time? Maybe we don't understand that yet, but I'm hoping by the end of the sermon that you will. There's another picture of figs just a few chapters later in Jeremiah 24. Turn over and look at that. Jeremiah 24. Starting with verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. Jeremiah 24, verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach 
a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them, and I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I give to them and their fathers. Do you see what happens in the paragraph starting in verse 4? God compares his people turning toward him and desiring him to good figs, the good fruit of a productive fig tree. The good fruit of a fig tree is like the good spiritual fruit of a people who love God and they're concerned with the things of God. They're not concerned with their wealth and their status and looking righteous and being pleasing to men. They're concerned with being spiritually wealthy, with knowledge of God and a righteous standing before him. Real righteousness in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of men. They want God to be pleased with them. Jesus knows that in a matter of days, Jerusalem will reject him. Do you think that if Jerusalem was bearing this, this good spiritual fruit and not suffering from empty religion concerned with appearances and, and worldly things, do you think Jesus would have been crucified? So Jesus curses this fig tree and he pronounces God's judgment on it. When they come back to it later, they're going to see that it's withered, it's dried up. Jerusalem's fruitlessness will also suffer a similar judgment. Right, right now in the story, we're at about 30, 30 A.D. In 40 years or so, in 70 A.D., during the Jewish-Roman conflict, the city will be ransacked and the temple will be destroyed. I've got a staple in here. I shouldn't have put one, sorry. So what brings this on, this cursing? Why this pronouncement of judgment against the fig tree? Do you remember from Paul's lesson two weeks ago? after the triumphal entry, where, where did Jesus go when he entered into Jerusalem? Chapter 11, verse 11, just right up above our pastors that we're studying today. He went into the temple, and it says, he looked around at everything. What was he looking at? What, when he goes in and he looks around at everything, what's he looking at? Well, we can tell by his response the next day. The next day, he goes back and he boots out all the merchants. That's what he went and saw the evening before he went and saw with his own eyes the fruitlessness of Jerusalem's spiritual state evidenced with the state of the temple court. Keep going, we'll see more. Move on to verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. That's what he saw in there the evening before. The portion of the temple that's open and unrestricted to the public, the outer court, they're full of merchants. Now, why would that be so? Why are they full of merchants? You have to understand some more of the law about the sacrifices in the temple. Right now, it's Passover, so people are bringing their lambs into the temple for, for that lamb sacrifice, but the normal temple sacrifices would include turtle doves and pigeons, and that's from Leviticus 14. Why are there money changers? The Jews also had a temple tax. That was instituted in Exodus chapter 30. And every Jew had to pay half a shekel to, for, the, for the upkeep of the temple annually. So every year they, they would come to Jerusalem, they'd pay half a shekel at the temple for the upkeep of the temple. The shekel is a Jewish currency, but the Romans don't use it. The Roman Empire uses the denarius. So you remember the coin with Caesar's likeness on it when, when they're asking Jesus about paying taxes. Just think about it for a minute. Try to picture in your mind. 
The sacrifices and sin offerings were meant to be spotless and unblemished. So they need these spotless and unblemished um, lambs and, and turtle doves and pigeons. And there's another law. All the Jews have to pay a tax with a particular coin, a half a shekel. So some entrepreneur decides he could probably make a pretty decent profit selling pigeons in the outer court. How convenient. He can probably charge a premium for a really nice pigeon. And some other guy says, everybody that comes in here needs half a shekel. So he sets up a table right next to the pigeon guy and probably makes a little margin on his money exchange. Pretty soon you've got competitors selling Smith pigeons over here versus Jones pigeons over here and money changers all around competing on their exchange rates. Pretty soon, the Jews would just make that their habit, wouldn't they? Instead of thinking about the sacrifice they're going to make to God and going out of their way to find an animal that would please him, they can practice their religion with only a little bit of inconvenience to themselves. Now, instead of thinking about their sin and, and how it's going to cost this animal its life, they have this commoditized convenience. They can just do their religious routine with as little interruption to their life as possible. Do you see a problem with that? If they practice their religion with this high emphasis on convenience, is their heart really worshiping God? Do you see the lack of spiritual fruit? How were the merchants allowed in there in the first place? The priests were charged with the care and maintenance of the temple, weren't they? The high priest had the authority to oversee the operations of the temple. This is certainly not happening without the priest's permission. Why would the priest grant that permission? You remember Jeremiah 8? What was God saying just now? God was lamenting. Even his priests are corrupt and greedy for unjust gain. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly why the priests were allowing this to take place in the temple, but it's not a huge leap of logic to think that they were probably benefiting from it financially. This would all be taking place during a normal season at the temple in Jerusalem. But now it's Passover. We talked about this earlier. The city has swelled to 10, 20, maybe even 50 times the normal population. Can you visualize that enterprising money changer or, or pigeon seller just practically salivating about how much profit they're going to make because it's Passover season? Rather than thinking about how he gets to serve God and his brothers by interceding before God with sin offerings and prayers, the priests are sitting there thinking about the kickback they're going to get from their friends, the pigeon sellers and, and money changers. You think about how they're going to profit from Israel coming to worship. Is that what God's house is for? For someone to make a profit by providing convenient religion? Is that what the priesthood is for? to enrich the priests at the expense of the people for whom they're meant to intercede? Doesn't that tarnish and cheapen the worship of God? Can you understand now Jesus' righteous anger at the spiritual fruitlessness of this taking place in God's house? So he drives them out. Verse 16 says, He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What does that mean? It means they were treating the temple of God like a hallway between the warehouse and the storefront. It wasn't a place of worship. It was a place you had to traverse to get your goods where they could be sold. Jesus says, no more inventory coming through here today. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting two scriptures here. The first one is Isaiah 56, verse 7. We're going to read that a little bit later. The theme of that passage is is God's inclusion of foreigners into his covenant. How non-Jews can become children of God. There's beauty for us here. This applies to us because we're not Jews. But for the context of that time in Jerusalem, do you know that for a non-Jew interested in worshiping Yahweh, they were only allowed in the outer court. They couldn't go to the inner court. All these money changers and merchants were taking up the room. We already talked about how the whole situation is ugly and fruitless, but think about it another way. The foreigners who, who have heard about the Hebrew God and they want to worship him, they probably can't even get into the temple because there's no room for them to worship. All the room's taken up by merchants. Or if they could get in, they're expecting to come and see what, what this Yahweh God is all about, the Hebrew God. They want to come see the beauty of his temple and, and the reverence of his people. And they would learn about repentance from sin and, and how a blood sacrifice is required for right standing before God. They would expect to come in and be in awe of God's holiness and be in awe of a God who has graciously revealed himself to the Jews and the Jews would invite others to come and learn to worship God with them. That was his intention. Instead, if these foreigners can even get in, what would they see? Merchants selling animals. What would they smell? Merchants selling animals. They would see money changers making a nice profit, competing stands with holy turtle doves and over here and then premium holy turtle doves over here for just 20% more. Passover special package of a pigeon and two shekels, only 10 denarius. Jews who had come not with contrite hearts prepared to worship a holy God and offer sacrifice to him, but instead with money to pay for the efficiency of convenient religion so they can get over with and get on with their lives. Priests of Yahweh less concerned about the beauty of the temple than they are with their friends, the money changers and pigeon sellers, doing well. What a mockery. When he calls it a den of robbers, Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 7, verse 11. You should read that whole passage to see more. We don't have time to read it today, but you'll see some familiar themes. God's warning the people that if they truly love him and worship the way that he's told them to, without hypocrisy, that things will go well for them. But if they don't do that, if they instead just practice the outward showings of the sacrifices and declare themselves righteous, but they do it without contrite hearts, full of repentance and reverence for God, he says his house, which is called by his name, becomes a den of robbers. Who's being robbed exactly? In some sense, it robs those who are interested in true religion people that want to worship God. It robs earnest worshipers of the opportunity to practice true religion with beauty and reverence. It robs them of their opportunity to worship God in his house in the way that he's prescribed. It replaces intentional worship of God and meditation on his word and concern about sin and a contrite heart. What does it replace them with? It replaces them with a convenient and easy routine. What about the witness to the nations, the foreigner, it robs the foreigner of his opportunity to observe the beauty of God's temple and the beauty of a people called by his name and to be attracted to that and want to be included in a true religion. 
But most importantly, can you see how this robs God of what is owed to him? The den of robbers is an apt name. Verse 18 and 19. Back to chapter 11. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is pretty straightforward. The threat of Jesus' popularity and potential to change the religious and political landscape is not just a thought exercise anymore. He's in Jerusalem, actively upsetting the status quo, and the people are listening. The religious leaders are perceiving that he's a zealot and a real danger to them. If they don't do something in the next couple days, they could lose everything. So they start plotting in earnest. We'll see that plot materialize very soon. Let's end with our application. What is the application for today? I would just ask you one question. Did you see yourself in the story somewhere? Maybe you're one of God's people. You make your weekly pilgrimage to church. You sing the songs. You give an offering. You're comfortable and you don't have to think about God's holiness too much or your sin or prepare your heart of contrition. Maybe you've got convenience built into your life so that you can check off the religious chores so you can get back to the stuff you really want to do. Like your entertainment, your wealth building, your relationships. Pastor Rob used to call this checklist living. Checking off the things you think God wants you to do so you can be saved from hell, but your priority is on yourself. That is an abomination to God, my dear friends. Checking things off our list doesn't please him. Think about the message of the book of Hosea. One of the major themes of Hosea is God examining his relationship with his people and comparing it to being married to what? A prostitute. He says a wife leaving her husband to go and sell herself to anyone that will have her. That's what it's like when you do your religious routine and claim that you belong to me, but I don't have your heart. He says that's what it's like to be married to you. But then in chapter 6 of Hosea, the theme culminates in verse 6. Listen to what he says. This is beautiful. God's talking. He says, here's what I desire. He says, I desire steadfast love not sacrifices, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I'll read that again. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifices, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6 6 is telling us God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants us to love him. He doesn't want burnt offerings. He wants us to know him. He doesn't want our religious routine. He wants us to earnestly desire him. Here's a picture. Those of you who are married and you've been married for some time, many of us have been through a season like this in our marriage where we're just kind of ships passing in the night, right? Expensive roommates. She has her routines and I have mine, but you don't have each other's hearts. You're not close. Those times are painful, aren't they? Why are they painful? Because when you're a spouse kind of feeling abandoned and you know you don't have the heart that you desire from that other person, can you see how big it is that the creator of the universe desires an affectionate heart from you? 
and that he deserves one? And as your father, he wants obedience that comes from adoration and trust, from your love for him. I'm not going to give you a specific application today. Only the Spirit of God can reveal to you what things you're putting on your checklist and what things I'm putting on mine and what things I need to do to get them off the list and into my heart. What I will say is to take the warning from the fig tree. God has little use for empty, fruitless religion other than to uproot it and cast it into the fire like from our scripture reading this morning. If you're worried, that might be you. Come get help. Ask the Lord of hosts for help. He will help you. Ask other believers for help. Ask us for help. Don't, don't be a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Maybe there's a foreigner here just observing God's people interested in the religion that serves the living God, Yahweh. Other times we pronounce it Jehovah. It means the God who provides. We here at this church hope that you would observe a true religion born out of love for God and his beauty and his holiness and that your obedience to his everlasting word would be attractive to you. That it would make you wonder at him and make you want to know him. We hope that you would see that and wonder if it's something that you could have. I have good news for you. The gospel is good news for you. But take heed, your sin is as offensive to him as mine is, as any of ours is. But he has made a blood sacrifice once and for all to make eternal payment. Jesus paid it himself with his own blood so that you and I can be reconciled to God through faith in him. He died on a cross, a shameful execution, so that you and I need not bear God's wrath and judgment against sin. And in acceptance of that sacrifice, God raised him from the dead on the third day to eternal life, just as you and I can now have eternal life through faith. In Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel, friends. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we earnestly desire to be good trees that bear good fruit, to not become a byword to the nations, but instead, Lord, to become a stone of remembrance where people that hear our names would know that we were servants of the living God that loved you, that desired to obey you, that had hearts after you. Lord, change us now to be this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.